we have started a study about how we speak. We want to know how to speak to each other wisely. We want to know how to choose the right words and say the right things in all of the situations that we face. Every single one of us has something on our minds that is uh, perplexing to us, worrisome, uh, and, and maybe even um, making us angry this morning, something that is bothering us. And as we think about those things, it always comes down to, at some point, needing to say something to someone or give some kind of answer. Words are part of the way we live life. They're part of how we solve problems at work. They're part of how we uh, raise up our children, grandchildren. They're part of how we keep our relationships straight, and words are also a deep part of how we mess our relationships up because we say things that are foolish, unjust, not thought through, unwise. So what we're studying here is what is God's wisdom that can teach us to speak wisely. How do we learn to speak wisely? How does this work? What we saw last week as, a, as an opening to this study over the next six weeks, we saw that what we say flows out of whom we trust. I can give you a lot of nice words to say. I can teach you tactics that will make you appear to speak better. I can give you um, ways to modulate your tone of voice so that what you say comes across better. I can tell you to smile when you talk. I can tell you all of these kinds of things, but none of them will really get to the heart of speaking wisely because none of those things actually address our hearts, who we trust, and what we really think about our future. And so we're starting out uh, addressing this issue of who do we trust? We saw last week that like David, the only way to begin to speak wisely is to have a deep, settled trust in the Word of God, as he did. And to have that trust growing and deepening because we're committed to learning more about it. This week, we're going to see that What we say flows out of the people we trust. And the people I have in mind are the people who are our teachers, our guides, the the people who have instructed us from the very beginning of our lives, maybe, about how to live, fathers, mothers, grandparents, and also people who have earned the right to be heard, heeded, and listened to closely in our lives, in, uh, our lives after we, uh, if we can put it this way, graduate from our families, if we ever do. Uh, so we're talking about that group of people who are guides, instructors, if you will, to pull out an old-fashioned use of this word, our masters our masters who instruct us in the way we should think, the priorities we should have, who school us in life. We're talking about those people now, and what we're saying this morning is we really can't learn to speak wisely if we're trusting the wrong people. We can't trust, we can't speak wisely without trusting God and His Word, 
And we really can't learn to speak wisely without submitting ourselves to the instruction of godly people around us and really doing it, really heeding them, really listening to them. These people are crucial in our lives. And if I were to place my bets this morning that we were stuck as a church, as individuals, in any particular way, I would place my bets that we're stuck in foolishness because we lack guides. We lack people in our lives who we really understand we need to submit to these people. We need to learn from them. We need to heed what they say very carefully. And uh, perhaps we are stuck because we've done that in the past and we've been steered wrong, perhaps by parents, grandparents, pastors, elders, whatever it may be. And so we're going to tackle this problem this morning and we're going to see that how we learn to speak wisely flows out of the masters in life who we trust and submit ourselves to. We're going to start out with the example of David this morning. Uh, We're going to see uh, how David interacted with Solomon. And in particular, we're going to see that Solomon had a priority of listening to David, heeding him closely. And so as we look at that, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles 28 and 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Then we're going to look at directing someone's thoughts to wisdom, how that is done, how our teachers, parents, guides do that in our lives. We're going to look at how we inherit priorities and truth from them, and then we'll do some evaluation of our own hearts. Let's dive into 1 Chronicles 28 this morning and the relationship between David and Solomon. I want us to see in this passage just a very simple thing that Solomon listened to his father. You say, that's it? You're just going to send us home with that? Yep, that's it. It's a very simple priority here that Solomon, from a very early age, decided that he was going to heed what his father David said. And we get to the end, close to the end of David's life here, and David is passing on a massive set of responsibilities. Solomon is to be the king of Israel in David's place when David uh, ultimately abdicates from the throne in his old age. He is going to hand that throne off to Solomon. And so part of what he is doing in 1 Chronicles 28 is training Solomon for that job, training him how to take that over. But in the context of that, Solomon has a very specific role as king. He will be the king who will build the temple in Jerusalem. God has given David this promise. He has raised up Solomon for this purpose. And so David has taken on this charge. I'm going to train this young man how to be king and how to build this temple. How do you do that? Look with me at 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, this is David talking, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart 
and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. A father exhorting his son. What he's saying here is, look, Solomon, the task is massive. The significance of what you are doing is lasting. It's even eternal. It is of first importance, therefore, that you know the Lord. He says, know the God of your father, my God. Know him yourself. I'm passing this on to you and serve him with a whole heart. Give yourself entirely to the Lord and be willing to do it. So this is exhortation from a father to a son. This is as uh, Solomon is very much of age and David is an old man. And one of the things I have learned about uh, men of a certain age, they have their speeches and they give them over and over again. Uh, We know that one of their speeches is coming because you'll you'll have this uh, little introductory phrase and then a story that you've heard many, many times and then the speech. And the speech will involve some manner of exhortation about what you are supposed to value, do, not do, whatever it may be. Old men have their speeches. I will be an old man one of these days. I am going to have a lot of speeches. And so here is David as an old man, and you you can almost, you you find yourself wondering if, if Solomon doesn't respond to this old man's speech that he has no doubt heard many, many times before. If he doesn't respond to this by saying, I know, Dad, yeah, got that. Thank you. I heard that. Yes, yes, thank you. I, I heard you. I understand with that kind of impatience. Well, he seems not to have done that. He seems not to have responded to David in that sense. Um, because what happens in the next paragraph, we're not going to read all of this, but you get basically a summary in verses 11 through 19 of everything that David has planned for the temple. He's got it all drawn out. He's got it all written down, and he is walking Solomon through all of these details right down to the weight of silver that he is supposed to use for the various vessels in, uh, in the work. And so he's laid all of this out. He's got all of the drawings in verse 19. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord all the work to be done according to the plan. So he is walking Solomon through all of this. And then David says this, verse 20. David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. I'm going to pause right here. I'm not getting a lot of microphone sound. Are you, is the mic on? Okay. 
could you boost it up a little bit? I don't want to talk that loud. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. Um, so David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous to do it. Those are words from Scripture. That's from the book of Joshua, chapter 1. You remember, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Go into the land, take it, fight these battles, don't stop. And so we get these words that David has read from Joshua. He takes them, he has applied them to his life in battle after battle, decision after decision, one act of repentance after another. He has been strong and courageous, and now he's saying to his son Solomon, you take this, take these words, take the example of Joshua, take my example, be strong and courageous yourself, build this house, get it done. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And he, he repeats some of the things that he has said here. In other words, you've got a father in his old age training his son, and the things that he is dwelling on are the priorities of trusting the Lord, following him, and being strong and courageous in his name. Now, the only question is, does Solomon listen to this? Or does he sit there impatiently taking this in and say, in essence, yes, I've heard all of this before. Can't we just move on to something else? Stop talking to me like I've never heard this before. He doesn't say that. And the proof is, if you turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 1, this is the moment at which Solomon becomes king and <clears throat> one of his first actions is to worship the Lord and the night after he does this, verse 7 of Second Chronicles 1, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. This is a very famous story. You all know how this goes. You've heard this before. But I just want to impress upon you and even impress upon my own heart how many times David said these things about the character of God and the priority of serving him with a whole heart and a willing mind. How many times he said, trusting the Lord is the key to everything. And this is the moment that is the make-or-break moment when Solomon is either going to have wisdom or he's going to have folly in his heart. God says, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? Ask of me and I will give it to you. Here's what he says, verse 8. Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father. And have made me king in his place. What is his starting point for this? History. The path up to this point 
for Israel, for David, for the kingdom. He says, you've been faithful all this way. You have walked with my father right up to this point. What does that mean? It means that when David was talking, Solomon was taking it in with a willing heart and mind. He was receiving all of that information, all of these priorities. So he starts with the Lord talking to him, you have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. This is your deal. This is your plan, your show. So, O Lord God, let your word, verse 9, to David my father now be fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Notice this. He goes back again. You made promises to David. You said that all of these things would be accomplished in David's line. So I am asking you to keep all of those promises in me. And how is God going to do this? Verse 10. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? We start out with the question, how do we learn to speak wisely? And the answer from the scriptures is, what you say flows out of whom you trust. We need to trust God and his word, and we need to receive that heritage from real people in our lives who we submit to actively. That's how we learn to speak wisely. It's not a question of knowing information. It's not a question of taking classes and studying and doing all of these kinds of things that might be very important in and of themselves. But wisdom is about inheriting the priority of who God is and how deeply he can be trusted inheriting that from a real person in your life. And that's what Solomon did. And that is what Solomon is talking about as we go to our text this morning in Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, which Heath read for us earlier in the service, is this same man talking to his sons. And he wants his sons to speak wisely as he has learned to do. He wants them, as every father does, to make decisions that are wise and right and just. He wants all of this for them. And so he is talking to them about what it is that he knows about wisdom. I'm fascinated by what he says here in chapter 4 and how he talks about the source of, uh, of wisdom for him. It was his father, David. So he directs his son to the source of wisdom in his life, and he says this, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive Why? Because you owe that respect to your father and you should honor him uh, according to the commandments. Well, that's true, but that's not the reason he gives. Why should a son be attentive and gain insight 
It's because he wants to receive wisdom. The way to receive wisdom, Solomon says, is to be attentive to heed and hear a father's instruction. In other words, he gives a call to his sons. Come here and listen. This is the voice of authority. It is the voice, and and when I say authority, I, I really need to define what I mean by that because for a lot of us, when we've experienced authority that has been misused, we hear an authoritarian voice, and that's not the voice here. An authoritarian voice says, I have the power to force you and compel you to listen to me. I have the power to compel you to do what I want you to do. And I'm going to get the result out of you that I require. That's the authoritarian voice. The authoritative voice says, Son, I have the right to be heard and heeded. Whether that's the voice of a father, the voice of a mother, it is the claim on the conscience of the person that he's talking to or she is talking to, listen to me, pay attention to what I am saying because I have the right to your attention. I can't compel you to do it from the heart. I can't force you to do it. Ultimately, I can't coerce the right things out of you. But I am calling you. I am directing your heart to pay attention to what I am saying to you. There's a tremendous amount to think about uh, in this one verse. We've got a lot of people in our lives saying, listen to me. On social media, everybody's saying, hey, listen to me. Listen to what I have to say. Look at what I have to show you. You've got commercials, videos. You've got websites. You've got friends texting you. You've got all these people saying, listen, listen, listen. Look, look at what I have. Look at what I'm showing you. But there are only a few people in your life who have the right to sit you down and say, no, really, listen, heed what I am saying to you. That's the kind of authority that Solomon is giving right here. And he's saying to his sons, be attentive, that you may gain insight. He says, verse 2, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. I'm telling you the good stuff. I'm going to give you the inside story on how this really works. And I'm going to talk you through it. And I'm going to walk with you through it as you go through the course of your life. So listen to me. So laying it on the line here, we're saying, and the scriptures are teaching, that we really can't learn to speak wisely and say the right things until our hearts are trusting the right people and really trusting willingly, giving over some of the direction of who we are, what we think, and what we think is an important priority, giving that over to this person. Second thing that um, Solomon does here is he summons up 
the memory of his own upbringing. So he's going he's gonna to go back even before what we just looked at in 1 Chronicles 28. He's going to go all the way back to what he calls his tender youth. Verse 3. When I was a son with my father, tender. What is that? Responsive, affectionate, dependent, happy, moldable. So you can take the opposite of all of those things. What's the opposite of tender? Jaded, cynical, dishonest, rebellious, and arrogant. You say, well, you've got to be 16 years old to have that stuff. I don't know about that. I know a lot of tender 16-year-olds. I know a lot of rebellious 5-year-olds. We've seen that too. So if we take this uh, the way Solomon is giving it, he's now going back to some of his earliest memories of David, his father. Now think of this. This is the king of a very great empire. The master of that economy, the general of all of the military, the one who levies all the taxes and sets all the laws, the one whose day is full of meetings. And what is he making time to do? Sit down with a five-year-old and say, let me tell you, son, what the score is. Let me talk you through this. Listen to me. What an amazing testimony that David gave to Solomon about the high priority that Solomon was to him, that he would make the time to talk that little five-year-old, or however old he was, through the ways of wisdom all throughout his life. So, put this differently. First Chronicles 28 was not a one-off conversation where Solomon uh, is called into his father's presence after his father has been distant and remote throughout his entire life. And finally, his father says, Okay, I think you're ready and mature enough to hear how this really works. How well do you think that conversation would have gone? Probably not real well. No, this is a lifetime pattern that David set. And by the way, there's a lot of reason to think that David himself changed his pattern as a father when he received Solomon from the Lord's hand. As a father before Solomon, David shows all the evidence of being a self-involved CEO, high-performing guy who didn't really have time for his kids. So this is a change for David. And Solomon says, basically, to his sons, I've been where you are. My dad said to me, listen. And he, he said that to me daily, day in, day out, for as long as I had him in this life, from my tenderest age. When I was the, a son of my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, we'll look at this in a moment, Hear my teaching. Hold fast to my words. Let me ask you something. Who are the people in your life who have the right to sit you down and say, listen to me? Who are those people? 
it may be that your answer in your heart and mind is, I don't have that person. There is that person. I've been on my own from the very beginning. As long as I can remember, I've been my own provider, my own decision maker. You may be in the place where your father wasn't reliable, wasn't around, didn't care, was abusive, whatever it may be. It may be that uh, you would even say, there was not a single man in my entire life who took enough of an interest in me to sit me down, look past my attitude, and say to me, listen up, kid, I've got some things you need to hear. Maybe you're saying, that guy didn't exist for me. Sure wish he did. So here's the good news if that's the position you're in. You're in a church where that man exists for you. And one of our primary roles as a church is to connect men together so that we finally start telling each other what the score is and how this really works and talking about it uh, and, and saying to each other, no, really, stop being distracted by all of this other stuff. Listen to me on this thing. The decision you're making is going to take you off track or you're missing a massive opportunity here. So, this, this kind of role, both for men and for women, is open to you in this church. It's really at the core of what we do here. It's right at the heart of everything because I, I don't just believe this as a preaching point that the way we learn to speak wisely is flowing out of who we trust. I believe it as a practical matter as the core of my whole philosophy of ministry. This is it. You take this away from me, I got nothing. I think it's that important. So, uh, let me return to this question. Who are the people in your life who can sit you down and say, listen, who can direct your soul in that way? Maybe you're in a slightly different place. Now, I had those people but I burned those bridges. I told them all to take a hike, and I'm still doing it. I decide what I listen to and who I listen to. I decide what's important. If it doesn't line up with what I think, I don't have time for it. I'm not going to sit around and listen to it if that is the case then hear me well on this point. It doesn't matter how many nice words you learn in church, they will all make you worse. Because at your heart, you have a resistance to authority in your life that has the right to sit you down and say, son, you need to listen to what I'm telling you with that heart of resistance, you can't learn. It doesn't matter how good the teaching is. It doesn't matter how much you like it. You won't be able to receive it. 
The thing that has to change in our hearts is that responsiveness to the authority of God's word and to the authority he has placed around us in real flesh and blood people in our lives. And this is, the, this is how we change. This is how I have changed. It is how I continue to change. It's by listening to people who are in authority over me. So uh, we could talk about that a long time, but we need to, to move on in this passage. Because Solomon doesn't stop with saying, hey, my dad told me a lot of stuff. He actually quotes David at length. And basically says, here's what I inherited. So we want to learn how to speak wisely. We want to be like Solomon in that sense. If we're going to do that, we need to start to see ourselves as heirs. Stewards who are receiving a legacy that doesn't belong to us but which we are called to care for. That's how Solomon views himself. I have received a kingdom, and it's not mine. I have received a task to build this temple, and it's not mine. It's a stewardship. And so I am to take all of these things that don't belong to me, and I am to steward them in the right way. That's how Solomon views himself. And so he's saying to his sons, I received a stewardship, a legacy from David, and now I am passing that legacy to you. You are my heirs. So I'm just going to stop right at that point and ask, are you an heir or are you an owner? Are you the one who um, has started everything in your life from scratch, built it up from nothing? I didn't inherit a single thing, pulled myself up by my own bootstraps and by my own hard work. Is that you? Or do you see yourself as the heir of a legacy that doesn't belong to you and it is your job to pass it on to your heir? Um, Solomon views himself this way. He says, verse 4, David taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to what? To my ideas? To my preaching points? Hold fast to my broad priorities? No. No. David said to Solomon, and Solomon repeats to his sons, Let your heart hold fast to my words. I don't know about you, but when there are key people in your life, important guides who have instructed you and directed your soul and your thoughts and your actions... You can remember what those people say and how they say it. You can probably, you, you've probably got a, a recording, a little file in your head that you can play back and you can hear their tone of voice. You can hear their cadence, their diction. You can hear the words play back to you what they said. And a, a lot of times we talk about 
playing those kinds of tapes in a negative way. But what Solomon is talking about here is a deep-rooted, positive source of strength for a person where you can actually replay what people say and you hold on to the words they speak to you. Um, Solomon quotes David and he says, The instruction my father, your grandfather, gave to me is, Let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. What are commandments? Words. Specific things that we are told, instructed to do. David said to me, your grandfather told me, keep my commandments. I'm handing them off to you and you will live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not run away from the words of my mouth. What is he saying here? I am giving you things to hang on to with the words that I am using. Value them. I almost can't say enough about this. We're in a society that has an abundance of words and chatter and talk and text it's just, it's, one, one writer in the last century called it a Niagara of words. It's just spilling on top of us all the time, every day. And yet, when you really get right down to it with people, what do you think is right and Why? All of a sudden, the chatter stops and the crickets start. Because we become very inarticulate when we're suddenly asked to say, What do you think? Tell me what you think is right and tell me why you think that. And let's talk about that using words. Well, if we're asking, What do you feel? Oh, we can talk all day about that. We got plenty of words for that. But if it's, what do you think? Bottom line, what matters most to you? It's crickets. And we get inarticulate about that. Why? Because we have lacked guides, we have lacked teaching, and we are very puffed up with the little that we do know. And so when it comes right down to it, We don't have very much to say about what is right, wise, appropriate, just, equitable. We're just kind of at a loss for words. So one of the things that David is saying to Solomon is, I'll give you some words. They're very important. Hold on to them. There needs to be someone in your life who you trust deeply And you've built that relationship with that person. So that when they sit you down and say, listen to me, I have a right to be heard in your life. And when they start giving you words, you start taking note of what those words are saying. And you hold on to those. And you treasure them. The second thing that um, Solomon describes from David as he continues to quote him is 
the, the priorities that David has, and it's really only one. There is a heart priority in David that he wants to pass on to Solomon through all of these words, and it's very simple. Let your heart hold fast my words. Notice the, the kinds of words he uses. Do not forget. If there's something you want to remember, do you remember it? If there's something you don't really treasure or care about or have a lot at stake in, do you remember it even though you're supposed to remember it? No. We remember what we value. And so David is saying here, hold fast my words with your heart, with your emotions, your priorities. Hold on to these tightly. He says, verse 6, do not forsake her. Forsaking someone is betraying them, turning your back on them, walking away from them. By contrast, he says, do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her. What kind of a word is that? Is that an intellectual, dry, abstract word? No. That's an emotion word. That's a word uh, that speaks about attraction. That's a word that talks about value and worth. Saying, love her and she will guard you. Love what? Wisdom. Love it, Solomon. And Solomon, quoting his father, says, Sons, listen to me. Love wisdom. Go after it with everything you've got. The beginning of wisdom, verse 7, is this. Get wisdom. It's the only priority. It's the only thing. Go out there, seek it, go on the hunt for it, and don't stop until you find it. Make this the top priority. Whatever you get, get insight. You can have all the money you want, but if you don't have insight, you're going to lose it. You can have the biggest army on the face of the earth, but if you don't have insight, Solomon, you're going to lose the battle to someone who does have insight. He even goes on. Verse 8, prize her highly. What is it when you prize, prize something? When you go into someone's home, and you can see what they prize because it's displayed prominently. It's in some place that they want to keep right in front of them and they want everyone to see when they come into that house. What is that thing in your heart? What is that thing in your home? What do you prize? David said to Solomon, prize wisdom. And Solomon says to his sons, prize wisdom highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you, what? Embrace her. What are these words? Prize, embrace, love. This is talking about relational attachment to wisdom. He's saying, be infatuated with wisdom. Love it. Seek it. Verse 9, David said to Solomon, She, wisdom, will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. 
This isn't saying if you prize wisdom, you will get an A on the test. It is saying you will have beauty radiating from you wherever you go. You will become the attraction because you have wisdom and she bestows on you a crown that is beautiful, eye-catching, lovely to behold. What is David talking about? Quality of life. He's not talking about information. And Solomon, in quoting David to his sons, isn't talking about information. He's saying, sons, listen to me. Open up your hearts to love wisdom. You want to know how to speak wisely in the situations that you face? You want to stop kicking yourself for saying the impulsive thing or the wrong thing or the malicious thing? You want to stop paying the price for that? Do you want to change the atmosphere of your life from folly and blackness to wisdom and beauty? We all want that. There's no shortcut. What we say flows out of our trust for God in his word and our determination to learn it. And it also flows out of our trust in our guides and our willingness to say to someone, you have the authority, you have the right to demand my attention, to sit me down and say, listen, and I will willingly listen to you even though it may be difficult and I may not like what you have to say initially. But I will listen and I will consider carefully what you're saying because I prize the wisdom that you have. No shortcuts. If we want to be the people who speak wisely and decide wisely, we have to know who we trust and we have to value those people. And so... Uh, the third observation that I would make here is that for Solomon, learning these things is not about information. It's about catching priorities. And if there's, if there's one thing in the life of David that speaks clearly throughout his whole experience from beginning to end, it is, I love you, Lord, my rock, and I will worship you, and I will worship no other. And that is what David conveyed to Solomon. So, let's ask some questions of evaluation here. I'd like you to consider two things. First of all, this question. What God did you learn in childhood? Can you describe the God you were guided to worship in childhood? What was the character of that God? What was your relationship to that God? I think with many people, they would say very simply, the God that I was guided to in childhood was a monster. He was capricious, unpredictable, couldn't be depended on, and was just waiting to make me hurt. 
because that seemed to be what motivated the God of my childhood. Now, that can be your God dressed up in the language of the Bible, but nevertheless, that is not the living God. The living God is someone very different. The living God is a teacher. The living God is a friend, a nurturer. The living God is steadfast in his loyal love and faithful. He is not capricious. He makes promises. He makes generous promises, and he keeps them. So we go back to this question. What God did you learn in childhood from your guides? Because you may need to come to the place, even this morning, of saying, that God was an idol. That God was a mask of the real and living God. And the real God in the scriptures is a living, gracious, and powerful God, a God of steadfast love and loyalty. I want to learn that God. I want to trust that God through his word. And I know that if I do, I will be a changed person. I will speak and decide wisely in my life if it is founded on that God. But as the idol, you may need this morning simply to tear it down and throw it in the fire no matter how dressed up in Bible talk it may have been. Second question. How, in what specific way, does your heart need to change toward God this morning? It's not just as simple as saying the things that I taught were wrong we can inherit as the legacy from our guides often uh, through genuine, honest mistake on the part of our guides. We can inherit a hard heart toward God, a refusal to listen when God speaks, a refusal to trust Him. Um, We can start projecting all of the people in our lives onto the face of God. And when God speaks in his words, all we hear is the, the words of the people in our lives who have not served us well and have sent us off track. In that case, then not only do you need to tear down an idol and throw that in the fire, but you need to go to the living God and go even if it's in fear and trembling that the worst might happen to you. Go to him and say, change my heart toward you. I want to learn who you really are. I want to know your ways. I want to know your grace. I want to know your word, what it actually says. And I believe that you will receive me right now. I believe it because you promised it, and I'm putting all of this together in my mind, and even though my heart is full of fear, my mind is full of trust. Teach my heart to trust. If you are going to the Lord in that way, you will learn from him because that is the essence of what the Bible calls faith. That is what makes us righteous. By faith in Jesus Christ, that is the quality 
that leads us to forgiveness and a new relationship with God. So I would encourage you to think about those questions. They are designed to take us right back to our heart condition before God because speaking wisely in this world, being a blessing to the people around us with our words starts in our hearts. And if we do that work, the rest will follow. It will follow as certainly as day follows night. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask you to do this work in our hearts. And Father, there may be someone here who is experiencing your voice, hearing you speak for the very first time. And as that person cries out to you in something like these words, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I believe you died for me. I believe you paid for my sins. Please change my heart. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I can learn your wisdom and walk in your ways and lead me to people who can walk with me and help me and instruct me. If someone is praying to you, Lord, in that way or in a similar way right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit in grace and power would flood them with a knowledge of yourself, with light, with assurance, and flood them with the joy of knowing you and who you are. I pray that you would do all of these things for your glory and to advance your kingdom and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Looks like we may have a couple of questions here. So I'll take a look at these. Okay. (laughs) My dad is asking, what's my speech? (laughs) You're you're not old enough. See how I did that? I just kind of just eased right out of that. Probably won't escape it later, but um, yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, one of the things early in life um, that I learned, well, early, it was early adolescence. Um, Dad had a, a way of talking about rebellion that and he would name it and he would call me out on it even from a look in my eye and it was very important that he did that because that's him saying authoritatively I have the right to call you out on the condition of your heart and the fact that he did that repeatedly and talked about his own experience of rebellion against the authorities in his life some of whom I knew personally, uh, I could put all of that together and I could begin to walk differently. And so I, while I, I definitely had periods of struggle in, in adolescence, um, uh, as everybody does, 
I would not say that I had a period where I was just determined to overthrow everything over me. By the grace of God, I wanted to take in what they were saying. And I would just encourage you, young people, you don't have to rebel to think for yourself. In fact, the people who want you to rebel so that you will think for yourself want you to be just like them. And they will hold that over you. Um, I have found that the route to individuality runs through submission to real people. Individuality doesn't come through rebellion. Um, So that was one of his speeches. Um, And it was a good one. Uh, we are told in God's word why Solomon didn't explicitly, are we told in God's word, why Solomon didn't explicitly experience the consequences of his sins in his lifetime. Okay, so Solomon, very troubled character in the Old Testament as he gets on in later years. His sins were many. And in, in one sense, what you have in Solomon is the tremendous growth of wisdom and knowledge on the one hand and the growth and entanglement in sin on the other. And uh, the, most, uh, the most powerful of those sins was polygamy. Um, and uh, so he had many wives. Uh, one of the things that he got from his father and took to the next level in a bad way Um, And those many wives, as the scriptures warned him and all the Israelites, led him to build temples to other gods. Uh, So why didn't the consequences of his sins come upon him in his lifetime? One, because even in the mixture of all of those things, Solomon never committed the ultimate apostasy of denying God and walking away from him. He continued to live by faith in that sense. Um, There is also some indication of another and deeper kind of wisdom that came much later in life after all of the things that he did out of uh, wealth and, and luxury Uh, He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes, which some of you studied earlier this year. And it's a powerful book, talking about the fact that all the luxuries of this life are cursed and that uh, uh, there is no goodness to be had from them. And the conclusion of the matter is, he says, fear your creator in the days of your youth before all of this breaks and your body breaks down and you go down to the grave. Um, so there is that element of it. But I don't think we should underestimate the grief that comes upon an old king who won't listen anymore when a prophet comes to him and says to him, your sons whom you taught from a tender age will deny everything that you believe and your kingdom will be split. I don't want that grief. I don't want the knowledge that that would happen in my sons, whether I live to see it or not. I don't want that grief of the judgment of God 
coming on me in that way. Uh, yes, he did not see his kingdom torn away from him, but um, in all likelihood, he understood very well what was going to happen to him, um, and that was something of a contribution to Ecclesiastes. All that said, we need to understand that the character of Solomon is deeply mixed. We're mining the good stuff. One of these days, we will also go into some of the bad stuff uh, that he did uh, and did knowingly, and we'll learn from that too. Uh, so no simple answers to that, um, but uh, uh, some initial answers. Okay. Uh, David couldn't build the temple himself. His preparations were extensive and prepared to the fullest, though. Is there something to take out of this? Absolutely. David heard from the Lord, your son's going to build the temple, not you. And so David's takeaway from that was, I'm getting ready. I'm going to store up all the stuff. I'm going to start saving the gold and silver. I'm going to start drawing up plans. And there's also a sense of working with the Lord and receiving those plans from the Lord. Uh, that is stated directly in, in First Chronicles. And so what David does immediately is, I am supposed to wait, but I'm going to get to work. And I think that should be our attitude. We don't know what the Lord does with the legacy we store up in this life. David didn't know what, what Solomon was going to do with it, but he stored it up anyway, and he was trusting God for that. Um, uh, what if people placed in your life as guides give misguided advice out of uh, mistake, uh, not maliciously. Um, I don't think we have to say if. I think we just say when. I, I think this happens. And it is one of the grief, griefs in life, uh, both for uh, those who are guided in other people's mistakes and for the guides who eventually see those mistakes. No one wants to do this. Um, what I would encourage all of us to do is to take stock of the legacy you've received and learn the discipline of thanking God for the good in that legacy. Build on that. Leave the bad to God for his disposal. He can redeem the bad. He does that. Um, especially when it's mistaken. Um, but e even if you're in a position of saying, hey, I was, I was openly abused. Uh, this was not a mistake. This was a deep wrong, and it harmed me profoundly. Even in that case, if you look for the good in the legacy that you've received, thank God for it, build on that, leave the bad to God, um, you free your heart of a tremendous amount of bitterness going forward. Um, so, big subject. I wish I could say more about that. Uh, the history of the kings of Israel was very poor. Bad, good, bad, evil, bad, good, very mixed. Why is this the case? Was it possible their fathers were too busy running the country to speak into the lives of their sons? Maybe godly mothers of sons of an evil king was a reason for a good king um, and so forth. Um, how did this happen? 
There are some real mysteries there. How do you get a Hezekiah out of an Ahaz who burned his son to Moloch? And yet Hezekiah was the greatest reformer. That's what he grew up in, idolatry. And you want to talk about abuse. We're, we're talking about a whole atmosphere in the home of fear governed by a huge metal monster of a god with fire in his arms. Say nothing about all the other gods that they worshipped. That's mental and psychological torture. And yet the greatest reformer since David came out of that home. Somebody had a role to play in there. There was some guide alongside. And I think what we find is that uh, when the reformers, uh, the reforming kings, the good kings, emerge in, his, in Judah's history, we find that there's someone always kind of in the shadows alongside who helped guide that young person in the ways of the Lord. Sometimes it's a high priest. Sometimes it's uh, some other figure. Um, grandparents, this means you. This is your role. Grandparenting has never been more important than it is today. You have an unmatched influence in the lives of your grandchildren. And it may be life-saving influence. Don't quit. Don't give up and don't despair. Um, and this is also true of parents with adult children. If you're, you're watching your, your uh, teenagers make decisions uh, that you're uh, grieving over, uh, don't give up because uh, these, these legacies that we pass on of trusting the Lord are powerful and the Lord uses them. 